0: Welcome to The Locked Room, stories from the golden age of mystery and crime fiction. I'm Mordell, reading The Bushwhacker's Gratitude by Kirk Monroe. As we sat over our after-dinner coffee and cigars in the Major's cozy library one evening last winter, I discovered my host-to-be in a reminiscent mood and ventured to ask him a question that I had frequently meditated. He smiled and was silent for a moment before answering. Yes, I have, as you suggest, experienced a number of what may be termed adventures since entering Uncle Sam's service, of them all, however, I have no difficulty in recalling one that stands out pre-eminently as the most thrilling experience of my life. And then he gave this narrative. Shortly after the close of the war, I was ordered to a remote section of the South, not far from the Gulf Coast to investigate certain claims against the government that involved what for that part of the country was a large sum of money. As, for several reasons, it was deemed advisable that my real business there should be kept secret, I assumed the role of a settler, took possession of a vacant tract of land, built a 2 pen log cabin, engaged a negro servant, and proceeded to explore the country with a view to making the acquaintance of my neighbors the place in which i was located was remote from railroads or regular routes of travel and was about as wild and lawless a district as could well be found east of the mississippi it was a limestone country abounding in sinkholes caverns and underground rivers and thickly covered with primeval growth of timber A few clearings at long intervals marked the fields and garden patches of its widely scattered inhabitants, who were as primitive a set of people as I had ever encountered. During the war, it had been a very hot bed of bushwhacking, and its men had plundered and killed on both sides with a slight predilection in favor of Southerners and a bitter hatred of Yankees, although I carefully concealed my connection with the army and was most guarded in my remarks whenever forced to allude to the war. I could not hide the fact that I was a northern man. On that account alone I was, from the first, an object of suspicion and close scrutiny to my neighbors, by most of whom my friendly overtures were received with a sullen unresponsiveness that was, to say the least, discouraging.' My nearest neighbor was a giant of a man named Case Hafner, who, as I learned before leaving Washington, was the acknowledged leader of the district, and foremost in all its deeds of deviltry. He, better than any other, could furnish me with the information I wished to acquire. For this reason I had taken up my abode as near to him as the unwritten law of the country, which forbade neighbors to live with less than a mile of each other, allowed. In vain did I strive to cultivate his acquaintance. He would have nothing to do with me. Only by stratagem did I succeed in meeting him, when he simply ignored my presence and walked away without a word. He lived alone with his son, Abner, a bright, keen-witted lad of about fifteen, the pride of his father's life and the sole object of his ambitions. With this boy I also tried to scrape an acquaintance, hoping to win the father's confidence through him. But to no purpose. He either eluded me or fled like a startled deer if by chance we met, while others of the neighborhood sought my house with a view to satisfy their curiosity. With Case Hafner and his son Ab, I could hold no intercourse. So matters stood at the end of the month when late one evening on returning from an all-day's ride to a remote corner of the settlement— I was overtaken by a terrific thunderstorm, while still some distance from home. I was accompanied by Caesar, my negro servant, and we were on horseback. Bewildered by the storm, we lost our way, and after a half hour of hopeless wandering, floundering, and general discomfort, I was more than thankful to discover a feeble light twinkling in the window of a log cabin. Receiving no response to my repeated knockings at the door, I pushed it open and entered. I had not recognized the cabin and did not know until I saw Case Hafner sitting on a stool before the great mud-chinked fireplace that it was his. The man's face was buried in his hands, and he did not look up at my entrance nor in any way betray a consciousness of my presence. As I glanced about the rudely furnished room in search of Abner, My eye fell upon a bed on which lay the motionless form of the boy. The light was dim, and fancying him to be asleep, I called him by name. At this, the man by the fire sprang to his feet and glaring at me like a wild beast, cried out with a terrible oath that his son was dead, and for me to be gone before he killed me for intruding on his misery. Instead of obeying him, I stepped to the bedside. The boy was, to all appearance, lifeless, but disregarding the father's protest and making a careful examination of the body, I became convinced that the vital spark had not yet fled. He had been stricken with one of those quick fevers of that country and had apparently succumbed to it. With a slight medical knowledge gained in the army, I saw that there was still a chance of saving him. Caesar was at once dispatched to fetch my traveling medicine case while I heated a kettle of water. Case Hafner, meantime, regarding my movements, with an apathetic indifference, to make a long story short, I succeeded before morning in restoring the boy to life and a healthful sleep. At the end of a week during which I visited him daily, his recovery was assured. In all this time, though the father watched my every movement with a cat-like intentness, he never spoke to me if he could help it, nor did he express the slightest gratitude for the service I had rendered him. Thus, when the boy was so far recovered that I had no longer an excuse for visiting the Hafner's cabin, I was apparently as far from gaining their friendship or confidence as I had been before the night of the storm this state of affairs continued unchanged, when at the end of three months from my arrival in that place I found my business there nearly concluded. I had established the validity of the claims I had been sent to investigate, had reported upon them, and had been ordered to settle them with the money that would be forwarded to me for that purpose. At the same time, I imagined that all this business had been conducted with such secrecy as to be unsuspected by a human being beside myself and my principles in the matter. Thus thinking, I went alone and without a feeling of insecurity to the nearest railway station, where I expected to receive the money. I did not arrive on that day, but instead I found a cipher dispatch stating that it would be sent a week later. Accepting the situation with as good grace as possible. I purchased some provisions, placed them in the canvas bag that I had provided for the money, and returned to my temporary forest home. Late that night I was awakened from a sound sleep by a knock at the door of my room. In answer to my inquiry of, "'Who's there?' came a request in the voice of my negro man that I would give him some medicine to relieve the colic misery that was like to kill him, as he had made similar requests which I had complied with, Several times before, I unsuspiciously opened the door. The candle that I had just lighted gave me a glimpse of Caesar with ashen face and the muzzle of a revolver pressed against his head. At the same moment, a pistol was leveled at my own face, and I was seized and bound by two masked men. In vain did I demand the meaning of this outrage. No answer was given and I was let outside while a hasty but thorough search was made of every portion of the cabin. It was, of course, a fruitless one, and after a while the two men who made it rejoined the one who was guarding me. Now one of them spoke, and in a voice which, in spite of its disguised tone, I at once recognized, as that of Case Hafner said, "'You hey, might as well give us that money, Major, for we're bound to have it.' and the quicker you surrender it, the easier we'll let you off. I answered that I had no money, that it had not arrived. They replied that they knew all about my business, and that being closely watched, I had been seen to bring that money, which they knew I expected to receive, home from the railway station the evening before. Finally, their leader said, Well, Major, if you're bound not to own up till we force you to, we'll have to try a dose of the black hole and I reckon that'll fetch you to terms quicker than most anything. I had heard of the black hole, and the suggestion thrilled me with horror. It was a pit in the lime rock, reputed to be of fabulous depth, and was located at some distance from my cabin in one of the most impenetrable of the forest recesses. From it, so the Negroes had told me, issued uncanny moanings and groans which they attributed to the ghosts of those who they declared had been flung into it by the bushwhackers when they wished to effectually remove all traces of some of their numerous deeds of blood. I protested and made promises, but to no purpose. My money, or the black hole, was the only answer I received as I was hurried away through the forest. No other word was spoken. And left to my own bitter reflections, I took no note of the direction in which we were going, nor of the distance traversed. When we at length halted, I became conscious of a hollow moaning sound that seemed to come from the earth at my feet. Once more the question was asked, Will you give in, Major, and tell us where the money is, or shall we drop you into the back door of a hill? I answered, for God's sake, gentlemen, believe me when I say that I have received no money. If I had, I would gladly give it as the price of my life. A mocking laugh was their only reply. In another moment, a slender rope was knotted under my pinioned arms, and a sudden push left me swinging helplessly in the mouth of the awful pit beside which we had halted. Well, wait here just one hour, Major, came to me in Case Hafner's voice and give you a chance to consider the situation. If you decide to let us have the money inside of that time, just holler, and we'll pull you up. If you decide to go to hell and take the greenbacks with you, why, we'll just have to bid you goodbye, that's all. Then I was slowly lowered down, down down through the blackness so slow was my descent that i seemed to be suspended for hours and to sink miles into the heart of the earth the pain of the slender cord cutting into my flesh was well nigh intolerable and i bear livid evidences of it to this day with each moment the moaning gurgling groaning from the unknown depths into which i was sinking became more distinct and horrible Suddenly those above let go of the rope, and with a yell of despair, I dropped. I do not know how far. Into water that closed above my head. As I rose to the surface, choking and gasping for breath, I felt that I was being swept forward by a powerful current, and as I again sank, my feet touched bottom. A moment later I stood up in water up to my shoulders, and again breathed freely. For some time, I was confused beyond the power of thought by the hollow roar of the black waters rushing through those awful caverns. All surrounding space seemed filled with snarling, formless monsters cautiously advancing and making ready to spring at me. Even now, I often awake at night with the horror of that moment strong upon me. It was so unendurable that I resolved to end it. It was with great difficulty that I maintained my footing. I could not do so much longer. Why should I attempt to? There was absolutely no hope of escape. I tried to pray. O Lord Jesus, receive my soul. Then my muscles relaxed and I was swept away by the rushing torrent. I have no idea how far I was carried before my feet again touched bottom, this time in water that was not above my waist. I had closed my eyes. Now I opened them. A bright light was swinging to and fro not a hundred feet from me. I stared at it blankly and with a little interest, only wondering with a languid curiosity what sort of a subterranean ignis fatuus it might be, when suddenly my bewildered senses were startled into an renewed activity by the sound of a shout. It was a human voice uttering a long-drawn hello that echoed and re-echoed weirdly through the cavernous depths about me. I essayed to answer but could not. Then I slowly made my way through the shoaling water toward the light. In another minute. I stood beside a boy, the one whose life I had saved two months before, and as he cut the thongs that bound my arms, he said cheerily, It's all right, Major. Paul allowed you be comin' along this year way about this time of night and told me to surely be on hand to meet up with yer. Now, if you'll follow me, we'll be out in this directly. The boy was standing in the mouth of a narrow passage that, free from water, led away almost at right angles to the main channel of the underground river. It ended at a well-like opening in which stood a rude ladder. Climbing this, we emerged through a well-concealed trap-door, into the very room where Abner Hafner had laid at the point of death two months before. "'Is that all?' I asked as the Major paused and lighted a fresh cigar. Yes, miss all of the story, I could not cause the arrest of the gang, even had I known who composed it, without causing that of their leader, and from the moment that blessed light illumined the black waters of that underground river, I would not have harmed Case Hafner, for anything in the world holds best worth having, no. By daylight I was well out of that section of the country, nor have I ever since set foot in it. Have you ever heard again from that boy? Who? Abner? Well, I should say I had. I put him through college, and he is in Congress today. If I should tell you his real name, you would instantly recognize it as that of one of the smartest men ever sent to Washington from the far south. Please join me next time for more sinister skullduggery here on the locked room. Until then, beware of footsteps in the dark.